I want to set up two ends of a spectrum for you. On one side, my friend Elisa, who started climbing at her local gym when she was 10, went climbing outside for the first time at 14. Yeah, and even then it wasn't very often. I mean, the closest place was like three hours away or something that we would climb at. And didn't start trying to push her climbing to harder routes, like 512 or 513, let's say, until she was 22. Yeah, until I've been climbing for a really long time. Okay, that's on one end. At the other end, me. I climbed one each of 10A, 10B, 10C, 10D, and 11A, and then started projecting my first 12A over the course of about seven months. I remember after I sent that first 12A, a friend told me, that's a proper 12A, as in not easy for the grade. You'll be able to climb any 12A in the country now. Sick, I thought. I did it. I made it where I needed to get to succeed on this trip. Now, my partner had enough experience to know that probably wasn't totally true. But still, I think he was surprised to find his girlfriend, who was strong enough to climb any 12A in the country, gripped his shit 10 feet off the ground with her hips at the bolt on a 5.7 a month later, out for an easy day of climbing meant to retroactively bolster my confidence. Now, when I look back on that moment, or worse, a month later, panicked, top-roping a 5-4 arch outside Moab, I think, yeah, no shit. What did you think was going to happen? In her book, Climb Smarter, a book that is full of awesome mental training tools, Rebecca Williams writes that confidence is much more easily built in the first place than rebuilt after it's lost. Well, I'm here to tell you truer words have never been written. You're listening to Buddy Check, a podcast about mentorship in climbing, and especially the mental side of learning to climb. This is episode four, Unpacking Exposure Therapy. Today we're talking about fear, comfort zones, and mental training. I hope you'll forgive an eat, pray, love analogy. There's this part in the book where Elizabeth Gilbert is describing the spiritual guru she's found, and she's saying that she found it much easier to connect with the teachings from this woman, who was about her same age, college-educated like her, and soft and even-tempered. Comparing that with that guru's teacher, a raucous older man from another era who gave off a more forceful, almost aggressive energy. In an effort to overcome my fears and take responsibility for my mental training, I tried to read Arnaud Ilgner's book, The Rock Warrior's Way, in the first couple months of our road trip. Ilgner is arguably the father of mental training and climbing, and his books are still some of the most highly regarded resources on the subject. But I couldn't connect with him or his book. He was describing climbing 1990s trad 510s, and I was immediately on the defensive and sure he had never felt what I felt. So I didn't finish reading the book. Who I could connect with on this subject though is a student of Ilgner's, someone closer to my life experiences in some ways, and at least someone I could more easily look up to. Yeah, I'm Hazel Findlay and I'm a professional climber and what I call a mental training coach. Hazel has been climbing for 29 years and has been a professional climber for over a decade. She initially made a name for herself as a bold climber who could manage her fear on some of the UK's more notorious, difficult, and run-out trad routes, meaning there aren't a lot of places to put protective gear in the rock, so the falls are farther and potentially more dangerous. She is well known for her first ascents of big walls around the world, as well as her strength in single pitch sport and trad climbing, including completing the third ascent of Magic Line, a single pitch trad route in Yosemite that goes at 14C and was originally put up by Ron Kalk in 1996. Hazel has also been a mental training coach for over eight years. She is partway through a master's degree in neuroscience and psychology. And in 2022, she founded Strong Mind, 
a company through which she and other coaches facilitate workshops, courses, and one-on-one training in the areas of fear management, mindset, and other mental training skills for climbing. Hazel was first introduced to climbing by her dad when she was six years old. He passed away in the spring of 2023. Yeah, so I'm a Harry Potter fan and I, I like to say that I was a, um, I was from like a half muggle, half wizard family because my dad was like a, um, you know, like a real climber. Yeah, he was really into it. Uh, it wasn't just like he did it on the weekends kind of thing. Like it was his whole lifestyle and passion and everything. But my mom is like terrified of heights and, you know, gets really anxious and stuff around cliff faces. And, you know, she's just not really interested in climbing at all. Um, so, yeah, my dad introduced me to climbing and he, he was like a very traditional climber. So um, really focused on kind of ground up traditional trad climbing. And so a lot of the stuff I did with him was on the sea cliffs, the more adventurous stuff in the UK. But we also like went to the climbing gym as well. Yeah, my dad was definitely an important mentor. He was, you know, my first mentor, my first teacher, uh, sort of from the ages of like six until 13. He was probably my main climbing partner. But it, I also climbed a lot with his friends. You know, I was, I, I was exposed to a lot of the climbing scene. My dad was friends with people who were all ages, just because that's what happens when you're kind of like in a close-knit climbing scene. So I was, in some ways, I had a lot of mentors growing up, but he was my main mentor. But then I actually quickly started out climbing him. So when I was sort of like 14, 15, 16, although I could still learn things from him, I, I definitely kind of surpassed him. And then my parents divorced. So I also sort of like spent um, the majority of my time with my mum living with my mum. And because she didn't climb, I also climbed a lot on my own in the climbing gym. So I kind of had like a mixed exposure to climbing, which I think actually was quite good for my development. Hazel has said that people often assume she has never been scared or doesn't feel afraid in her climbing. And she's the first to clarify that is not at all the case. I also just remember getting just quite scared a lot of the time, even, you know, seconding, top roping things. I was just quite scared. And I don't think my dad was the best mentor if you were kind of struggling with some of that fear. I don't know if he really struggled in that way much. It was very much a macho kind of scene, you know, where like, either you were the right temperament to be a climber or you weren't, you know, you either were brave enough or you weren't, you either wanted it enough or you weren't. It's quite black and white in that way. Um, and if you were scared, you kind of just got on with it and you would improve eventually if you just stuck at it, you know, it was that kind of attitude. I remember like my dad had this girlfriend who was quite afraid and he would always just be like, Oh, just get on with it. You know? So in some ways he was a great mentor in certain aspects of mindset and certainly like in terms of like thinking about fear of failure and stuff like that, he had a great mindset and he had a great mindset around falling in general and understood that falling was part of climbing and that kind of thing. But in terms of kind of like fear management, he wasn't the best, I don't think, but that was what was normal at the time. And I think in many in communities is still normal now. So it wasn't like a fall on his half. It was just, you know, what people think, I suppose. You know, people's intuitions around fear aren't always right. Although she surpassed him in her technical ability at a young age, Hazel credits her dad with teaching her his philosophies around climbing, values she still maintains today. Yeah, so I think he was a great mentor because he, he really prioritized the experience. It wasn't about, you know, whether this is mountaineering or rock climbing or bouldering or going indoors or whatever it is. For him, it wasn't about ticking off the things or climbing a certain grade or like red pointing a route to death. It was all just about having these experiences where there were unknowns. He was like, adventure was like his highest priority. Even when we went for walks and things, it was never like, let's do the same walk that we know is good. It's like, let's go off the trail and see what's there. You know, it's just this mindset that permeated his whole life and his whole character. So it, yeah, that, that was something he really gave me. 
that I still value very much today. I am a little bit different. I also value performance and like right from the start, I really loved bouldering indoors. Like I just loved the movement and stuff. And he couldn't really understand that as much. So yeah, definitely like love of adventure, love of travel um, and yeah, prioritizing the experience, which is something actually that quite a lot of climbers either don't think about or don't do which is quite weird when you think about it, but so many climbers are so into kind of moving up through the grades that they kind of forget why they go climbing in the first place, right? And it's because of how they feel on the wall. And so often, especially in this age of Instagram and all of this, people are talk, talk about their achievements, but they don't actually talk about how it felt when they were climbing. Um, and I guess part of that's because it's harder to describe but also I think that people's values are quite outcome focused. And I think it was great for me to have this mentor that right from early on, it wasn't about, did you get to the top and do it? It was, how did you feel? And was it with the right challenge level for you? Because what's the success in climbing something that felt easy for you? What is there to celebrate? Um, you know, but if you really pushed yourself, but you fell and you fell off trying, then that's something to really celebrate. And he sort of put those values in me from early on, which um, really shaped my climbing, I think, and actually allowed me to progress quite quickly uh, early on. Hazel has now dedicated the better part of a decade to learning about fear and fear management, both academically and through coaching others. When we think about fear and mental training in climbing, I think it's helpful to set the stage for how she explains the concept of fear. For her, it's not a quest for or a requirement of fearlessness, but developing a skill in managing the inevitable feelings of fear. I think most people want to think about fear in cognitive thinking terms. They want to think about it in the like, okay, well, is it correct for me to feel fear in this moment? Is it rational for me to feel fear in this moment? Is it useful for me to feel fear in this moment? And that is some use in talking about it in those terms but I think that it can also be very unhelpful if you only talk about it in those terms and if that's how you approach managing it and that's because fear is a emotional nervous system response largely right so there's like a stress component to fear so you can't feel fear without being stressed and there's also a bit of a cognitive component when you're afraid, you're usually thinking about the thing that you're afraid of, right? But if you just think about your fears and it's without this stress response, then that's just maybe negative thinking or planning or something like that, right? It has to have this emotional component. So if basically you're just like, well, you know, it's irrational for me to feel this fear. So like that, if we put it in, in situational terms, okay, so like say you're indoor climbing, on an overhanging wall, it's steep and you feel fear, you might say it's irrational that you're afraid because you're pretty much safe, right? You're as safe as, you know, as long as you, you've got a good B layer and you know how the systems work and everything, then you're sort of physically safe. But if you get that stress response in your body, there's no amount of thinking you can do to remove that stress response. So it can be very unhelpful and it can be demoralizing and it can feel kind of like invalidating when someone's response to help you manage your fear is to go, well, it's irrational, your fear. It's almost like a category error, right? It's like fear isn't a thinking thing. It's your nervous system. It's sounding the alarm because it thinks it's somewhere threatened. It feels like you're being threatened. And that's because you're hanging on the edge of a wall with a drop beneath you, right? It's very normal for our prehistoric fight or flight response to be like, normally when I'm in situations where there's this fall potential on the edge of a cliff face, this is where it's dangerous. So I'm going to sound the alarm because that's the most prudent thing for your fight or flight response to do, right? Which mostly just cares about protecting you. It doesn't care if you want to climb 7A or... 11 or whatever right it wants to protect you so you're kind of asking like this part of your brain like your prefrontal cortex the one that thinks all these decisions and things to like override this threat response system it can help a little bit 
it's not like, you know, you can have a top-down effect on those systems, but it can also make you feel like, you know, you're out of control or that you're being stupid or dumb or a wimp or something like that when actually it's very normal. So, you know, when we talk about this in terms of fear of falling, you know, you have to do the practice, really. You have to fall over and over again for your nervous system to go, okay, this isn't actually so bad. I can do this rather than just tell yourself it's safe to fall, it's safe to fall. And most of the people listening to this, right, have probably told themselves over and over it's safe to fall. And I bet you it does not help their fear of falling. But of course, this is you can apply this to other things as well. And then also the flip side of that is like, say I go and do a free solo. Do I really want my nervous system to fire off with this epic stress response? You know, so the, so the flip side is that so I would say, oh, it's rational for me to be afraid because I'm free soloing. But really, it, what's more rational, you know, if we think if we were just robots, we still wouldn't have this stress response because it doesn't help me in that moment. So in both sides where you either have the fear response and you're safe or you don't have the fear response and you're unsafe, it's more about managing your fear so that it's not making you less safe. I mean, one of the, the biggest problems with saying to yourself, though, so say you're basically getting really, really stressed and you say, but I'm physically safe. I'm going to push on through. Problem is then you can get yourself into having a really horrible experience where your whole nervous system is in this horrible state of panic. And that's how fear is conditioned. It's like experiencing a micro trauma, right? And so many people who come to the coaching with me or to come to our courses have essentially like either they've experienced a big trauma, like they've witnessed an accident or they've had an accident themselves, or they've basically been like micro traumatizing themselves over a long period of time because they feel like they should be able to push through and do certain climbs or take certain falls because of this kind of rational, irrational distinction, right? Oh, I can see other people do it. I can see that it's safe. I'll just push through. But then if you're basically in a panic, all you're doing is telling your nervous system, actually, yeah, we were right to think that this is threatening. Like, let's just keep sounding the alarm. And um, so that's the kind of the real danger of essentially what you're doing, maybe in this is in sort of more simplistic terms, is you're not listening to your body. You're not listening to your nervous system you're listening to just the thoughts in your head and fear management, you have to start listening. You have to approach it from a more somatic side of things. So how do we go about developing the skills to manage our fear in climbing? What you would do is you would slowly expose yourself to more frightening situations like that to get yourself used, you know, it's exposure therapy, it's, it's kind of one of the most studied areas of psychology, actually, all of this. As she said, one of the most studied areas of psychology is exposure therapy, a concept we've probably all heard of in one context or another. The idea of exposure therapy is that you must slowly expose yourself to increasingly more intense versions of whatever the thing is that you're afraid of, and slowly your body will have less of a fight-or-flight response as it gets used to the stimuli. But there's a lot more nuance to exposure therapy as a strategy in overcoming fear in climbing. And it's easy to get it wrong. Say they're already using exposure therapy. So, you know, they're like, I've got fear of falling. I know I need to do exposure therapy. I think the main way that they would go wrong is by getting the challenge level right. Like you can think of it in terms of dosing potentially, right? So like to use an analogy, like say you had a fear of spiders, and you had to get used to, to spiders, right? Say you wanted to do a trek into the jungle or whatever, and you're like, right, I need to get over this fear of spiders. You wouldn't, like, jump in a bath of spiders, would you? <laughs> like, that sounds awful. Like, I have a mild fear of spiders, and that already sounds like I'm getting a stress response. Yeah, I got, like, a shiver when you said that. Yeah, you're, like, shivering, right? Yeah. So you would never do that. But this is what people's intuitions are around falling. They go, okay, well, if I can take a massive whipper, then all the other falls are going to feel okay. You know, <laughs> when you say it in that way, you're like, oh yeah, I can see why people think this. And actually Tommy Caldwell told me he did this because so he, when he was preparing for Dawnwall, he told me, he was like, 
So there's a huge rope swing down the top of Bell Cap, like this big rope fall thing that people do. He's like, well, I'll just do that because if I can do that, then I'll get all I'll get used to all the different falls that I need to take on Dormall. And even him, right, he's probably one of the most resilient climbers in the world, right? He said it made his fear worse. Like it was completely terrifying for him, this big rope swing thing. And um, he was like, yeah, now that's that's horrible. <laughs> but it, it clearly doesn't work. So really it's about dosing and the less resilient you are, the more important it is to get that dosing right because the more likely you are to get into kind of like a panic state. So that's, that's the most common thing that people do. They get it wrong and they can get it wrong in two ways. Either they overexpose themselves um, and end up panicking, like jumping in the bath of spiders or taking a huge whipper, or they avoid that thing that makes them scared altogether. So um, not falling at all, you know, is a, obviously a really common approach in climbing. I mean, um, there must be like half of climbers don't, fall much if at all um, and of course we just don't get um, more comfortable with the things that we don't do yeah and then you know you can get it subtly wrong where you're just it's just a little bit too high the challenge level is a little bit too low um, so it's, it's all about self-awareness and being able to tune into your body making sure that you're not overstressing yourself um, and also being mindful of when you're not exposing you, yourself to that thing at all. I think the main thing is to focus on your own indicators of stress. So for example, you, know, you could be doing everything right, but say you had a really stressful day at work, you're already arriving at the climbing gym or the crag or whatever with like this latent stress, right? This sort of like background stress. So like you're not going to be able to do as many falls that day before you get psychologically drained as you would another day so i think it's more important to pay attention to those sorts of things than it is around like specific numbers of falls or that kind of thing but i i definitely think the quantity is really good like i always encourage people to take more falls at a lower challenge level than to try to push too quickly to take bigger falls i also encourage people to take really really gentle comfortable easy falls at the end of the session to kind of reinforce the idea that you know, you're like leaving with it feeling good rather than being like oh that was a little bit much and then and, and a lot of it is like what's going to get you to come back and do it again so if you finish your session and you're like oh i don't know if i really want to do that again or even if you find yourself demotivated to do it again the next week maybe you got the challenge level wrong so you can use these sorts of indicators. And then the other thing is to, like the way we teach it is to use breath and some mindfulness tools to actually make the fall less stressful in the moment. So like breathing out as you fall, focusing your eyes on a spot before you fall and then looking down when you let go. Little things like this are very calming and essentially just kind of reinforcing this idea that, you know, this doesn't have to be scary, but say every time you fall, you're holding your breath, you're closing your eyes and you've got all this muscle tension in your body. What's that doing? It's just reinforcing this idea that what, where you are and what you're doing is not safe. So it's not just how many times you fall, but also how you're falling and what, what's happening in your body when you do. To go from understanding the concept of exposure therapy to practicing getting the challenge level right in your climbing. Hazel uses the model of visualizing our comfort, stretch, and panic zones to teach people how to assess the challenge level for themselves. You can picture these as concentric circles with comfort in the center and then panic at the outside. We use the model of comfort, stretch, and panic to give people a structure to their fear management and to the exposure therapy. And the idea is that all the growth happens in the stretch zone. So the comfort zone is where we feel comfortable. It's also where we rest and recover. But if we're in our comfort zone for too long, it's where we feel bored. And then the stretch zone, uh, by definition, you know, we've left the comfort zone. So it feels a little bit uncomfortable in that early um, stage of the stretch zone and then becomes a bit more uncomfortable. And then as we go further out, so imagine this being like a circle. And as you move it, out further you get to the panic zone and uh, the panic zone is defined by it being an unmanageable psychological state so that's when you know you start making bad decisions you don't you can't really be mindful anymore 
you know, you, 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 your stress response is very high. Um, and mostly what that feels like is your, your mind and body is just going, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of here. There's real like alarm bells ringing. Um, but the thing about this whole model is that it's, um, it's really fluid. Uh, changes over the course of your climbing life. You know, the things that were in my stretch and panic zone, like top roping or like leading indoors are now just like well within my comfort zone. And then of course it changes day to day as well. The whole uh, model probably shrinks, you know, towards the end of the day when you're tired or if you've had a stressful day, that kind of thing. And the idea is that we grow our comfort and stretch zone by spending time in the stretch zone and then coming back into the comfort zone to rest. Uh, but we can decrease the circumference of our comfort and stretch zone either by staying in our comfort zone or by having experiences in our panic zone so you can think of panicked experiences as like a stress to the whole system it's like a little micro trauma and then you can think of staying in your comfort zone as basically like avoidance and stagnation you know just becoming less and less resilient people the whole time we stay too comfortable and so many climbers are actually doing a horrible co combination of both where they stay mostly in their comfort zone and then they get bored and they go, right, I need to push myself today. And then they do something that's in their panic zone and they go, actually, that was horrible. I'm going back into my comfort zone. And they actually oscillate between these two like counterproductive places when really they need to like moderate the challenge. And the, the best thing to do is to like start always with what's comfortable because we tend to do this anyway because we need to physically warm ourselves up. And then you slowly, incrementally add challenge, whether this is falling or just climbing in general, to the point where you are in your stretch zone, you work in that zone for a period of time, and then you come back into your comfort zone to rest and recover. I think it's relatively easy to understand this concept conceptually, but I think it can be really hard to develop the self-awareness to know what challenge level is correct when you're actually doing the thing. It's definitely a skill that takes practice to build over time, which is one reason it can be helpful to work with a coach or participate in a course like what Hazel offers through StrongMind. Yeah, so any of the fear management courses that we do, we start off by teaching people like skills in building self-awareness. We have four main indicators of stress, uh, breath, eyes, sensations, and tension. Probably the most obvious one is breath. So tuning into your breath and your heart rate and using that as an indicator of where you are um, in terms of comfort, stretch and panic. And then, you know, other things can help with that, like journaling or talking about it. But the main thing is learning how to check in with those indicators of stress throughout a climbing day. It's much better if people develop the skills so they can tune in um, to their own experience. Um, but when we run the workshops, there's usually the telltale signs. And, you know, I've got pretty good at spotting them now. Um, and what can be really interesting, and this, and this really illustrates that, um, that, that sort of that false illusion that we have of, like, our rational mind really being the, like, sort of, like, the main thing that's online and the thing that can, like, really determine what's going on for us and, and it's it's the main thing that's active for us even though that stress response is is there and it's a this powerful force in our behavior we actually can have very little awareness of it which which might sound weird to you but like when we do the fear of falling workshops we'll have like a, a routine you know as we have like a, a process for our fall practice right we don't just tell people to jump off the wall and like you know the instructions are not like super simple but they're not like complex either like if you were on the ground you would be able to do them but as soon as people get on the wall they're stressed they forget to do them so we'll ask them you know like where were you looking when you fell and they'll go oh yeah you know I was looking at the spot and then I as I fell I looked down I to spot my landing and we'll record them on the video and you can see that actually their eyes were darting all over the place before they fell which is a clear uh, stress response and then as they fell, they closed their eyes or they, they looked somewhere else, you know, or like we'll ask them, what's, what's going on in your body when you, when you fall? Uh, are you relaxed? I might say, yes, I was, I was relaxed. And then we'll watch the video and they're really clearly tense. You know, their shoulders are up and they grab the rope, right, for this extra sense of security. And sometimes they're not even aware that they've grabbed the rope. So, yeah, feedback can be helpful. 
Um, and when we do the online courses, we get people to send in videos, but we also get people to learn how to analyze their own videos. So they'll take the fall, they ask themselves the question. They'll also look at the video and go, okay, does how I feel match up with what I see on the video? And if there's a big gap, then that's where you're like, okay, I need to work on my self-awareness. I need to take more time before I fall to check in with what's going on in my body and be like, okay, is this fall actually appropriate for me? In my experience, it was also hard to assess the appropriate challenge level for myself because before I could develop skills in that self-awareness, it felt like I needed to wade through the social pressure to perform in a certain way. And it gets back to that tendency to fall into certain roles within heterosexual partnerships and a passivity that gave over responsibility for making these assessments to my partner rather than holding all the cards myself. After the break, more mental training tips specific to that scenario. This episode is sponsored by Maple Syrup Punk. Hold on to your butts. The moment you've been waiting for is just around the corner. That's right, hunk. Maple syrup season is upon us. Every March and April, the hardworking hunks put in their taps and empty their buckets, sending thousands of gallons of sap down their sap lines to be boiled into sweet maple syrup. Maple syrup hunk products are designed for climbers, runners, and all active folks. During physical activities like climbing, running, or backpacking, your body can deplete its glycogen stores, leading to low blood sugar levels and severely affecting your ability to perform. Consuming sugar during prolonged exercise helps maintain mental clarity and keeps your hunky self motivated. The virtual shelves over at maplesyrupunk.com are a little bare this time of year, but with their pre-order community-supported agriculture box, or CSA box, which is now available, you'll lock down a box of fresh maple goodies. By pre-ordering your 2024 maple treats, you'll also be supporting the hunks to replace any sap lines, buckets, or other needed supplies that help to ensure a successful season. It's a win-win. Each box includes some of their infused maple syrup energy gels, a pint of pure wood-fired maple syrup, and a few special gifts just for your sexy self. Use promo code BUDDYCHECK for 15% off. That's promo code BUDDYCHECK for 15% off at maplesyrupunk.com. Send it, hunk. And now back to the episode. I asked Hazel if she's noticed any patterns through her coaching when her client's main climbing partner is also their romantic partner. I guess the sort of like the more stereotypical pattern is, yeah, the man is, is often more experienced. This is not always the case, though. It's maybe only slightly more the case that the man's more experienced. But I notice this especially in slightly older generations. So like age 40 up, more often the man is the more experienced one, I guess, because just fewer women were climbing back then. But also what I see is maybe that they're sort of equal experience, but it's as if the man is more experienced. Um, maybe because the man is a bit more comfortable or because the man maybe is slightly more dominating in character. And we have a lesson in some of our courses and it's come up with a lot of my coaching clients where, well, the lesson's called taking responsibility. And essentially, it's essentially about owning your own climbing journey. journey. And so many women, I would say a disproportionate amount of women, feel like they are not owning their climbing journey. So they're not the author of their climbing. So what might that look like? It might look like not picking your own climbing goals, uh, not picking where you go on holiday to climb or where you go away at the weekend, not picking the crag, not picking the routes you want to get on just seconding or top roping, whatever it is that your partner does, not investing in certain training that you might need to improve, uh, either physical or mental training, and just kind of just going along with things. You know, people pleasing, I think, is maybe a more common trait among women. 
um, and just having sort of appeasing everyone else being like, we'll just do what you want to do. You know, this is something that I see a lot in the women that I coach where they don't see it as much in men. I've definitely had um, men on the course who feel like that. So there's obviously exceptions to this, but I do think this is something that women experience. And then I, what I also see is maybe slightly different responses to fear management. So despite the fact that I think men are just as scared as women in general, but it's the response that I see to be different. And one response I see to be different is that I think when men are scared, there's more pressure for them to not discuss it, not seek help and to kind of get on with it. And so this works for some men with some personalities, but it does not work for other men. And I think sometimes the men that it does not work for feel quite alone and they also struggle to be able to communicate it. And sometimes their ego comes online a lot and pushes them and forces them to do things that are not appropriate for them. Women, I think, are more happy with the identity of being scared. The amount of women that come to me and go, yeah, I'm just a scared climber. Some men say this, but I think it's more common to hear women say this. And that's because society allows women to be afraid. It expects women to be afraid more than men, which has pros and cons. It means that I think women are more free and able to discuss their fears. But it also means that it can be more of an ingrained thing in your identity. We can have more of a fixed mindset around it because that's what we're expected to be like. We're expected to be, especially when I was growing up, you know, and it probably worse for women who are older than me, but... I grew up in the in the 90s and the amount of men who would say to me, oh my God, you track climb. And they would never have said that to me if I was a young boy. You know, well, oh my God, she's got bigger balls than I do. You know, I got so much attention and it was attention I didn't particularly love, to be honest. Um, and surprise and shock when people could see that I actually was able to manage my fear on the wall and I was able to be calm. And that's what was great, you know, maybe I didn't mention this before with my dad as well, is that he, it was very clear that he had, his expectations were not less. His expectations of me were the same as for my brother. He didn't expect me to be more timid than my brother, for example. So I was really lucky because I got exposed to that. But a lot of young women are not exposed to that. They're exposed to this idea that like, either you're brave and that's surprising or you're expected to be timid and then you embody that and you make that part of your identity. So, but of course the flip side of this is that if you're afraid and you're a man, it's harder in some ways because you're expected to be brave and bold and you're almost judged more if you're, you are afraid. Anyway, all of this kind of adds up to there being what can be a kind of a toxic dynamic among men and women who are romantically involved who predominantly climb together and don't often climb with other people. And often the pattern, what, what can happen is that the woman does not take responsibility for a climbing experience. She goes along with what the guy says. The guy perhaps doesn't either want to talk about fear or doesn't or isn't as afraid as her and therefore doesn't understand her fear and doesn't support her in, in productive ways with that fear as well. And this is a common dynamic, which I think is... Um, pretty bad for women in climbing, I would say. To shift that dynamic, Hazel said, she encourages the women she coaches to develop a practice in taking back that responsibility for their own climbing experience. And that can look different depending on what they're needing, but it starts from the same place of self-assessment. Yeah, I think, I think the main thing, you know, that I do with those I coach is really getting them to start taking ownership of their climbing. You know, whatever that looks like for you. So, you know, like really thinking um, and prioritizing your own experience in climbing. So going, what do I want to get out of this sport? How do I want to climb? How do I want to feel on the rock? Um, you know, what, what goals do I want to achieve? Where do I want to go? What routes do I climb? You know, asking yourself those questions um, kind of in, in isolation of your partner and just seeing what comes up for you can be very powerful and then finding ways to make sure that your climbing days are equally divided between what you want to do and what your partner wants to do 
so many women are saying, well, I don't want to slow people down. I don't want to try this thing because I don't want to take up other people's time. I don't want my partner to be bored feeling me. And I just say, well, just have it be an exchange of time. You know, like you try a client for X amount of time, your partner tries a client for X amount of time. If you are very different in terms of your abilities, so like actually you end up going to different crags, you could even divide your time. Like you go to this crag for the morning, they go to that crag for the afternoon. But ideally, if you're that different in ability, I would recommend trying to find other partners who are sim more similar in, in ability level. Um, so yeah, diversifying your partners is, is a real obvious one. That's just quite difficult for some people to do. You know, like I coach women who've got families and they all go to the crag together as a family, finding other people to be involved in that whole family situation. Or, you know, some people just live in places where they don't actually have other climbing partners around. So then, yeah, then it's going to be more about, you know, just taking ownership of your climbing, dividing the time fairly, investing in your own mental and physical training. And what else? Like really good communication with your partner, you know, like because the thing is, the chances are that you'll have ingrained really deep patterns. Um, you know, some some people are coached, I've been climbing with these people for like 20 years, right? You know, and it's like, but, but I always put the quick draws in or like I always pick the crack, you know, so it's going to be hard when, when that all gets challenged. So, you know, making sure you communicate it rather than just like changing your whole deal and then being surprised or like, you know, you know, them being surprised and then not kind of working out. So yeah, really good communication around it and trying to have it like not be their fault, you know, like not being judgmental or attacking them, but going, you know what, I've realized that I don't have the best relationship with climbing. And part of that is the dynamic we've fallen into. So can we change some things? And it can be really good for their growth as well. Partners can be, it can be tricky. You know, it's one of the things we find in our courses, like, you know, we're working with people on them changing some of their beliefs and values, either around themselves or around climbing or the relationship with climbing, or we're working on helping them manage their fear um, and being kinder to themselves around that. But one of the things that we butt up against is partnerships. You know, people will say, I'm trying to work on my relationship with climbing. I'm trying to have healthier values, but like the, all the people that I climb with are like really outcome oriented or they keep pressuring me into doing stuff or they're very competitive in a negative way, or, um, they don't want to support me with my full practice, you know, and it's really difficult from a coaching perspective, because how can you help people find different partners? You know, it's like, it's not my job right but actually one of one of the benefits of the strong mind community is that some people have actually got together and climbed with people that they've met through the strong mind community so as it grows and grows we might actually be able to start facilitating that a bit but still it's difficult um you know we've even had people say that like you know people have on purpose given them hard catches because they think what they're doing is stupid and things so, you know, like we've actually had some like pretty nasty stuff happen, which is obviously is very rare, but it's still very surprising from the climbing community. And I think that, yeah, like one of our missions at Strong Mind is to help educate people and change the values a little bit just so people can feel more supported as well. Going back to the specific scenario where one partner is also in a mentorship role and is trying to help their partner through an experience of fear. It's important to be mindful of what they need from you as a mentor and to maybe shift how you encourage them from that perspective. So what can happen sometimes when one person's afraid and the other person maybe doesn't understand about this whole comfort stretch panic thing and this whole exposure therapy thing and this whole of like, you know, pushing through isn't helpful um, when you end up just in a panic state and you're having a terrible time right so it, there can be this like intuition in climbing but just like the more we encourage people to go for it the better right and that can end up pushing people into situations that aren't appropriate for them so when you're with someone who's afraid you know asking them questions around you know how do you feel do you want to continue what can I do to help you know or even just like not saying much you know just being positive and being nice and stuff, but not, I think especially in the States, because you guys are like so like positive and 
sort of shouty a bit, you know, like you love like cheering people on, which is really nice. But I think it can be interpreted as like, oh no, now I've got to do this or I failed if I don't continue. So just thinking about it from that perspective as well can be helpful. And everyone's different, you know, like if you've got this real tendency to stay in your comfort zone, then you might appreciate a bit of encouragement. But if you're like already in a state of panic and then someone's saying, you've got this, you can keep do it, keep going, keep going, you're totally safe, just take the fall. You know, it's like, is that actually that helpful when that person probably does actually need to say take and then do their practice falls or, you know, whatever it is to get into that right challenge level. So yeah, being mindful of how you encourage people um, is, is really important in these sorts of dynamics. I am guilty of pushing my challenge level too far when I was learning, jumping through grades really quickly to reach an outcome-based goal. And I dug myself so deep into my fear of climbing that I had to take a really big step back to find the appropriate challenge level and start rebuilding my confidence. When something has happened in your climbing, maybe an accident or a series of microtraumas, as Hazel calls it, and you're needing to rebuild your confidence. A lot of these same principles apply. Then it's even more important to not go near your panic zone. And it's going to be very easy to go near your panic zone if you've had an accident or a trauma. Um, so you're taking it very slow is uh, important. A lot of self-kindness, you know, to just reminding yourself that this is a normal, healthy nervous system response. Uh, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just going to take time to recover. And making climbing experiences or whatever it is that you need to get used to again, um, just making them as positive and as fun as possible. So, you know, whether that's just taking the right snacks to the crag or being warm or going to your favorite crags instead of the ones that feel uncomfortable and not as fun. I think that that actually can go a long way, like being around the people that, that light you up and make you feel good rather than put pressure on you. I think all those things are really important. But I also think it's important not to, to avoid things too much as well. And so I think that actually like really cataloging what you're doing, having some sort of diary um, or, you know, doing something like one of our courses or getting a coach where you're held accountable is also really important because it can be very easy to just go, you know what, I just, I'm just not going to do this for a while. And all of a sudden a while turns into years or whatever, you know, so also holding yourself accountable to doing some work, but just making sure that that work that you do is pretty gentle. Kind of like if you would rehab from a physical injury, you know, you would just be more careful. You'd be more cautious and you'd add load way slower and you'd be really mindful of what you were doing. You know, a lot of these principles are like really analogous to physical training. Yeah, it's everything like, not that it's surprising, but it's just a, so compassionate. Like everything you're sharing is such a, yeah, just like be kind to yourself, be kind to others. Yeah. And prioritizing people's experience rather than, prioritizing people's experience everyone's experience and also like validating people's experiences that's what we do a lot of and that's what people are often surprised to hear the amount of times people have gone oh my god hazel finley i thought she was going to tell me to like do something scary or like push me and i would say that nine times out of ten i'm telling people to drop the challenge level i'm not telling people to do more you know so that's the intuition that people have is they do way more than actually what they're ready for. And in, and in doing so, they take backward steps. They think that they're not, there's no risk in that, you know, but if we think of it in terms of physical terms, you would never like jump on a fingerboard with all the weight that you can't do. You know, you're going to get injured, right? We're, we are aware of that. But when it comes to the psychological side, we're like pile on the weight, pile on the difficulty of this experience. And then we're, we either are surprised or we aren't even aware of the fact that that's actually causing us to be more afraid. So yeah, people are usually pretty surprised when they come to the coaching with me or come to our online courses that actually they, they're like, oh yeah, I've been over-challenging myself for years. And actually now I need to strip back the challenge, go right back to basics, which for some people is like taking top rope falls, like with a tight top rope. And then they get used to that and then they can start building back up. But if you can't if you're not actually aware of even where you're at, 
how can you build back up? It's like not doing a physical test before you start a training plan. You need to know what your strengths and weaknesses are before you can build the training plan. So yeah, you might think of it as compassionate, but it's really coming from a place of common sense as well as being compact. Like obviously we want to be known as being compassionate, but this is also just what makes sense as well. It's not just like, oh, we're doing it for the sake of being kind. We're actually doing it because that's what works too, rather than like what's actually causing people to be more afraid. Mm, yeah yeah I ended up you know going back to just like climbing in the gym for like almost a whole year and I would just like do that until that actually felt boring and it was such a hard thing for my ego to like let it be true that it was still scary and like I wasn't bored yet yeah I think it it's really hard to make yourself go back to basics like that it's really hard yeah it's really hard and that's why educating the community is so important because then you don't get to that point in the first place even just simple things like when you take a beginner to a climbing wall the beginners will grip the rope and they'll be completely tense and no one teaches you to just be okay hanging on the rope when you lower off a top rope for example no instructor will say to you okay take deep breaths lower your arm take a few little bounces on the rope to see if you can become more comfortable in that space. No, they're just like, well, if you're safe, you're safe. You know, it's all around physical safety. It's all focused on the tangible. Of course, physical safety is important, but how is that person going to become more comfortable hanging around on a rope and hope to one day build up to taking lead falls if they're not even past that first step? Um, so like actually implementing these psychological skills right from the get-go is something I'm really passionate about. People come on our course and they're like, I'm a total beginner. Can I get something out of it? And I'm like, you know what? This is great that you're doing this right now when you're climbing because you'll carry this information and knowledge through rather than like so many of our climbers coming to us after 20 years in the sport, not even progressing at all because of their fear. So yeah, I think it needs to be a bit of a like community-wide change. And I think as we you know, go to go back to the whole gender thing, for so long, we basically said to be a climber, you have to be brave, but that's just not the case. You don't have to arrive at the sport comfortable with this stuff. You know, some people do and they excel, but everyone can do this sport if we have the knowledge around how to help them and support them through the sport. Um, instead of having this giant barrier to entry, which is like, get up that top rope wall or that auto belay and then just like fall off the top and like be okay with it. You know, like we, we have such high expectations from people. So yeah, lots of changes I think that need to happen, um, but not enough people talking about it. So it's great that you have this podcast. If you want to participate in one of the courses through Strong Mind, they will have several offerings this year. We're probably going to launch Strong Mind again this year which focuses on um, fear management in general. So it covers fear of falling, fear of heights, fear of exposure, fear of failure, performance anxiety, social fears. It's like quite a comprehensive fear management course for climbers. And we'll probably open that around June time. And then performance hacks is more around mindset and um, accessing performance states in climbing, like flow state, focus, presence. And that's available all the time and we have a link to some free training which will kind of give you more value and information and, and help you work out if you would like to do that course. Next time on Buddy Check. More on this idea of taking ownership for your own climbing and an ode to all the reasons we love to climb in the first place. Nice, all right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. And um, great to meet you, and good luck with the rest of the podcast. Alrighty, bye.